Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts. Gabe, a wine professional working in wine and spirits education. And I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And today we oh, I are- I can technically count myself as a vineyard <gasps> oh, worker. Yeah, <laughs> I saw you posting pictures. How was that? Uh, for you, the listener, I was out at a winery called Loving Cup this weekend. This is the only organic winery in the state, fun fact. And uh, their wine club, instead of being the standard wine club where you, you know, uh, sign up for discounts on wine, you volunteer labor in the fields uh, and you get a certain number of hours and then you can achieve the discount, but you also, you know, offer help, which is kind of the uh, intended purpose as it's very hard to do organic farming, uh, especially in a cost effective way here in the state. So uh, I was out there doing some leaf pulling with everyone and it was quite fun opening up the canopy to help the grapes breathe and not get bogged down and rot off the vine because we're so moist here yeah. in Virginia uh, and humid, yeah, which was a very interesting experience. Learned a lot about kind of the hands-on practicality of that side of things. So yeah, definitely enjoyed it. Oh my gosh, that, that must have been such a fun experience. Yeah. Um, that also would have exposed the uh, grapes to some sun. Do you know what type of mm -hmm. grapes you were working with? I do, unfortunately, because they're a hybrid, they had a weird name. I want to say it was like Marquette, if I remember correctly. Mm. Marquette sounds right. Um, it's a red varietal, if I remember correctly, or variety, excuse me, that they use for a lot of their blending. Most of their wines are going to be blends out at Loving Cup. So hopefully we'll get a chance to actually try some of the stuff that you now have had a personal hand oh, yeah, in true. helping to prepare. <laughs> Indeed. I didn't know that they did uh, volunteer for discount, but that's actually kind of an amazing incentive. Yeah. Uh, where are they located? So they are a little bit past Charlottesville, kind of going almost into the Shenandoah, but not quite. Um, if you're familiar with where Pippin Hill is, they are basically right there. They're just a couple miles down the road. That is so cool. Yeah. We'll have to get out there sometime this year in order to be able to try their stuff. I don't think I've had anything from them as of yet. Unless, did you, have you brought anything back from them? I thought I had you try one of their wines, but I have you try so many wines at this point that it is hard for me to remember what you have and haven't tried. They have a pet net that I know I've at least told you about, but I don't remember if you've actually tried it or not. Hmm... No, you did tell me about it, and we were going to try it together, but then we ended up trying something else. That's how that happened. Well, and regardless, <clears throat> if you're not sold on hybrids or if you've had bad hybrid wine, I would actually highly recommend, and you're in the state of Virginia or visiting, going to Loving Cup. They are the ones that kind of sold me on hybrids being a viable option for good wine. That is so exciting. I am so glad that you had a chance to do that experience. We're going to have to talk more about that after the episode. Mm-hmm. But today, we are going to be talking oh, yeah. about something. Wine is not the uh, episode topic for the day. Yeah, the, the next episode will be, and uh, <laughs> that one's going to be scary. Um, we're, we're both actively terrified of that one. This one is only slightly less terrifying because we were talking about acts of illegal distribution of alcohol during the Prohibition, specifically rum runners. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know what Prohibition is... Prohibition was something that was enacted through the Volstead Act, which is the 18th Amendment of the United States. It went into full effect on January 17th, 1920, in response to a quite oversaturated in alcohol culture at the time in the United States. This is very different from the Canadian Prohibition, which preceded our own. 
essentially what it was is that the production, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages became illegal outside of very select purposes. You could have wine if you were doing it for religious purposes or medicinal purposes or industrial purposes. Mm-hmm. And that was basically it. Of course, we ended up getting a lot more priests and rabbis during the time. <laughs> uh, and a lot yes. of people suddenly became um, incapable of sleep and needed a prescription. Yes. So, uh, those also, were, those a lot of people started drinking uh, unpasteurized grape juice. Yeah, with specific instructions. Yeah, on, on what not to do. Because if you if you didn't do those things, then you know, it would just stay grape juice. It would just stay grape juice. But you, if you did those things, which they were specifically telling you not to do, then you, you might have some some vino on your hands. Oh man, it'll, it'll be hard to spot too. Yeah. One would say it would almost be plausibly, deniably wine. Yeah, yeah. Who would feign to break the law in oh, such yeah. a way? But another what thing, hooligans. Uh, another thing that ended up popping up. Across cities, especially in places like Chicago and New York, were tons and tons of soda pop parlors and <laughs> ice cream shops. Ever heard of a guy named Al Capone? <laughs> uh, Al Capone was uh, one of the one of the greater uh, known ones, known for having a lot of underground channels between his little soda pop parlors. These soda pop parlors and ice cream shops actually being what we now call speakeasies. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of speakeasies were just secret bars that were hidden behind bookcases and stuff like that. But a lot of times it was actually out in the open. It's just that they had their drinks disguised. They had creative little names for them, and they would be mixing in various types of liquor. But that liquor needed to be transported from somewhere. Yep. And we only had a couple of ways of doing that. You either were going to have it distributed from illegal distilleries or you were going to have it imported from outside the nation yes and the best way to do that was using your transportation crews known as bootleggers and rum runners mm-hmm. now we are going to be focusing today on the rum runners primarily because they were the ones that were getting us our rum from canada and the caribbean as well as a couple of other nations that would use... few places kind of, in Europe, actually. Yeah. Primarily uh, Scotland for whiskey. Yeah. So, But they normally would use the... Uh, oh, French champagne, too. Yes. Because eventually it stopped being just liquor and also got into wine and certain other forms of alcohol. Yeah. It was just that the liquor was easier to transport and you got more bang for your buck. Yes. Especially since they had to be thinking about how to transport by volume. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get the most by volume that they could. Yeah. So we had this prohibition go into effect and suddenly we had quite a strong response from the surrounding community. What it didn't do was stop people from drinking. What it did do was transport all of the alcohol business into illegal hands. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of the people that went into this business at first were actually kind of stand-up people, including some of the people that we're going to be talking about today. And then we ended up getting others who were very violent, very competitive, very territorial. But the rum runners in particular were running things from either the Caribbean or parts of Europe or Canada, trying to get it to just off the coast of the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a border between where the jurisdiction of our coastal guard was and the open sea. And that border is where these deals would go down. You see, 
our rum runners, they were grabbing the stuff and then they would come just up to that border, which was a few miles off of the coast. And then other people would come up in little schooners and they would load up their ships. They would get their alcohol. They would give the money and then they would part ways. This became more and more difficult, though, because the Coast Guard in particular was being tasked against them. Mm -hmm. And they were having a really hard time keeping up with them. You see, with all of those funds coming into the rum running community from those deals, they had a lot of money to invest in a lot of modifications. These modifications allowed them to increase the speed and efficiency of their vessels quite well, actually. Yeah, some of them were using uh, airplane engines as motors for their speedboats. There was also a compounding factor to this, and that is that the Coast Guard, because of how military contracts, at least at the time, worked, they were limited in what ships they could build, basically, Mm -hmm. in terms of capacity for modifications to match what the rum runners were doing. So the Coast Guard was always kind of playing catch-up. And towards the end of Prohibition, that kind of turned into a little bit more of um, just shoot on sight, don't bother chasing, uh, got pretty bloody pretty quick when they finally stopped playing nice. And kind of illegal in some cases. There was actually times when they did go over the border into international waters mm-hmm. and just sunk ships. Yeah. And they later had to pay damages to the survivors, but they still just basically illegally killed a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very fun time to be on the high seas, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Just like they haven't even technically done anything illegal yet. Yeah. But we're going to kill them for some alcohol. And actually, to your point, Because they couldn't increase the speed of their ships, what they did instead is they just built a bunch more. And that's why we ended up getting so many outdated ships on the water. They just kept on making them, trying Mm -hmm. to basically create a barricade up and down, especially the East Coast. Just tons and tons of ships. Yeah. Now, some ways that our guys would try and outsmart them, a lot of these were... First done by a man named Bill McCoy, or William McCoy. What do you have on Will McCoy? To start with, he's one of the most famous rum runners. If you do any kind of research on this, you'll probably run across his name. He was an interesting guy. He was actually already a shipbuilder by the time Prohibition got enacted. And then, long story short, he got involved with rum running. The reason that we think that we now have the phrase the real McCoy is actually because of this man, Bill McCoy, coming from the fact that he was a very reliable person in terms of never diluting his product, which at the time was a very big issue that many people were having to confront who were purchasing alcohol, uh, which was, you know, people cutting their supply with water in an effort to get a lot more money, basically. And so Bill McCoy was known for never diluting his product. He was known as a very reliable and a very fair transactioner, I guess we'll say. I believe it was like if you bought a case, he would give you a certain amount of liquor additionally free. He also was always on time. Uh That was a big thing. Yeah. He was very reliable. 
And again, that is where we think the term the real McCoy came from. I came across an article that said that there was like a newspaper clipping that had the real McCoy around that time, if not maybe a little bit before he really rose to prominence. So we don't know if that's quite related or not, but predominantly that's where we think it came from. And they saw themselves as heroes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Bill McCoy actually once said, I don't care what they say about me. I just want to sell my rum. Then you also had people like Roy Olmsted. They were like, rum running is a business. I'm a businessman, not a criminal. Of course, he he actually was one, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were like the Robin Hoods of the Prohibition. We gave the people what they wanted by Oni Madden. Yeah, and there's something to be said. Sorry not to yeah, cut no, you please. off, but the economics of rum running were quite interesting in that a lot of fishermen... And people who owned small businesses during Prohibition, particularly near the coast, and a lot of them in Florida, were relying pretty heavily, actually, on rum running as a source of additional income. Uh, So there's the, yes, they were breaking the law, so like in a literal sense, they were criminals, but there is something to what you were just saying, these quotes of, we're just supplying what the demand is there for and it actually did help some people earn extra money if you were a rum runner yourself you were earning hundreds of thousands of dollars every year which in modern day money is millions yeah so it it was lucrative it was highly lucrative for a while at least yeah Um, but going back to bill mccoy he had a couple of different ships he had a couple of different ships the most notable one though that you'll see most is the uh tomoka So this was originally a fishing vessel, and one of the things that was very popular amongst all rum runners that McCoy, again, kind of helped uh, at least popularize, even if it wasn't totally his original thought, uh, was to take out the fishing compartments used for storage and turn them into basically secret compartments for holding liquor. They would also hide liquor in the bottom of the boats. They did all sorts of stuff. They they had... um... Like smuggling tubes. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, these were fascinating. Yeah, when I read about them. Yeah, there were ins- uh, installed concealed tubes or pipes throughout the boat that allowed them to transport like alcohol from hidden compartments to various locations in the vessel itself, so they mm-hmm. could actually like change it. They were rooted behind walls, under decks, through existing structures, so it just it was moved very discreetly. They would also alter their ballast tanks. Mm-hmm. And another note on those, uh, the pipes, yes, the pipes, is that those were also installed on land at boat houses where the schooners that would take the product to land would offload, and then they would have underground tunnels, and some of these were also mechanized, where they would send the product then to a house on the mainland, uh, kind of away from the boathouse in a way that was very hard to catch if you didn't know what you were looking for. Yeah, so it, it was basically, it was seamless. Yeah. It was completely seamless. They would just go up, and it was just basically pumped in. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. They would also have, like, false hulls. They would mm-hmm. uh, create a second bottom to the ship. Yep. There are so many things that they would they would do in order to basically just make it look normal from the outside but they were actually transporting tons and tons of stuff well and they actually well and i guess they i'm referring specifically back to bill mccoy here uh had to invent a new way of packaging liquor that was not in crates because crates are a very conspicuous and b 
when you're trying to pack as much product as you can into a certain place, it's actually pretty inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a warehouse, it works, obviously. But if you're trying to do it undercover and you're trying to fit into weird shaped compartments and stuff, you need something that's not a giant square mm-hmm. of 12 bottles. So instead, what they did is he invented what was called the burlock or a ham, which were little pyramids of liquor bottles that were it was what six on the bottom mm-hmm. and then I think three and then one on top. Yeah. And you would wrap the bottles in straw, and then you would wrap that in burlap. And that, A, it could float. Uh, or if you needed to offload it because you're about to be caught by the Coast Guard, you could actually throw it overboard with like a rock or something. And there are all sorts of ways to remember where you threw it off. Uh, some people would like attach flashlights to them so it would glow. Or you would just mark, you know, in your head where it was thrown off and you could come back for it later. And also, these were very easy to uh, move around as needed uh, in terms of, like, orientation for storage and stuff. So it, it was kind of a brilliant way of repackaging liquor bottles to sell them. So it was a scheme for transporting and storing alcohol in the shape of a pyramid. So in a way, he also <laughs> made the first pyramid scheme. <laughs> But it somehow wasn't multi-level marketing. No, no. It was actually very direct product to yeah. patron. Yeah. Uh, they also actually, they would get like radar systems, radio equipment, speedometers, all sorts of stuff that they equipped their vessels with in order to actually figure out kind of where they needed to be, if there was a Coast Guard presence. Mm-hmm. Anything like that, or contacting people. Hey, when are you going to show up? When are you going to be here? What's going yeah. on? That sort of thing. Now, there is one very common modification, or it became very common, that Bill McCoy actually had on his Tomoka as well, and that is heavy-duty machine guns. Yes. <laughs> now, um... Piracy became kind of a thing. Yeah. So, sticking with Bill McCoy... This actually ties into how he got caught and eventually was taken out of rum running altogether. Uh, And that was that he got in a gunfight with the Coast Guard in 1923. You know, he got up on the mounted machine gun that he had on his boat for self-defense, admittedly. I don't think we know of him acting aggressively towards anyone, uh, but he did have to defend his ship multiple times, both from the Coast Guard and from other runners. Before they had even probable cause, they were demanding that Mm -hmm. he give up his vessel at the time uh, not the Tomoka, but the Arethusa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was his last ship. Yeah. So that gunfight happened. They shot the hull. He ended up surrendering. Weirdly enough, only served nine months in jail. Mm-hmm. Then returned to Florida, which is where he was from, and got back into shipbuilding. <laughs> now I didn't see anything that directly stated he was building ships for rum runners when he went back, but I come on, yeah. Because he was one of the most outspoken, conscientious objectors to the whole idea of prohibition. Yeah. This is a man who famously didn't drink, but he hated the idea of anybody trying to limit your own choice. Mm -hmm. So for him, it was like, oh, well, that's a ridiculous law. I'm definitely not going to follow it. So I cannot see him serving nine months in prison where he likely was considered a hero oh yeah absolutely to not immediately go back and start doing it again i'm just i'm still shocked that he only served nine months because he was like the most notorious well one of the most notorious rum runners at the time well also think about it though what did he actually do 
that was illegal according to United States law. All of his transactions were outside of our jurisdiction. Yeah, that's true. So technically, he didn't do anything. Yeah. But unfortunately, not everyone in rum running was uh, quite as kind. No. There was uh, quite the problem very quickly developing of organized crime Mm -hmm. and gangs and the mob specifically. Although I will say um, the mob until later on in two rum running was mainly bootlegging. They would kind of rely on the rum runners to get the product until they figured out it was cheaper for them to use pirates and mercenaries to take over the rum running vessels and then integrate it vertically into the enterprise. Yeah, it was so with all of that money being shifted over to illegal business, first of all, it wasn't being taxed. The Mm -hmm. closest thing to a tax that they had were payoffs that they were using in order to keep cops off their backs. Yes. Which was a thing. And in fact, in oh, yeah. some towns... That, that it, ever since Prohibition started, yeah. people were paying. Oh, they were on the t- some, some cops liked the idea of Prohibition, not because they were keen on people stopping drinking, but because they knew that they could flex it in order to get more money. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just like, a oh, more opportunity for corruption. Yep. We love it here. Yep. In point of fact, there is one town... This was on the West Coast where it was just kind of known that certain members of the mafia could go in and out of the evidence room where they were collecting all of the bottles that they would confiscate. Yeah. And the the policemen, the officers, uh, the chief of police and even members of the city council used the place as a liquor cabinet. Mm-hmm. It was just there. Yeah. But because of all of that shift in wealth to illegal business you had a ton of incentive to get involved and you were already operating outside of the law so those that would be violent and were willing to subvert the law they did exactly that yeah i mean there's no code of ethics among thieves in a way at least as it came to rum running for the most part i mean obviously we had some standouts like bill mccoy yeah but the difference between a, a conscientious objector and people who really just are willing to screw over anybody. And, and I, I think it's important to note that while rum running did have its benefits economically for just having the product in the country, I would say most of the people engaging with it were much more of that than they were of Bill McCoy. Oh, well, especially towards the end of it. Yeah. Oh, it it got brutal towards the end. These were very well-funded, sometimes highly organized, especially if there was a a vertical integration of power. Mm -hmm. Um, But these were highly funded, highly equipped, very well equipped. We're talking new types of weaponry being brought in on speedboats new types of weaponry being used in conjunction with faster and faster cars. Mm -hmm. These were the types of of criminals that were turf wars into it. Yeah. Huge. Both, both on land and on water. Yeah. And a big blind eye because they knew that they could pay off the officers that would be investigating those incidences. So they got bloody on the high seas. Yes. But they also partied on the high seas. Yes, they did. One of the more interesting ways that I came across for selling your alcohol was uh, basically a honeypot, if you will. 
where the mafia or before the mafia even really got involved, this was a practice. People who were making all this money, as we said earlier, rum running, could buy yachts and they could park their yacht just off the coast or eventually, you know, 12 miles from the coast and hire prostitutes and casino dealers, basically, and just throw huge parties on these yachts and people would come out and drink on the yachts and it also because these were people who are also doing rum running not just holding these parties you're essentially attracting a whole new customer base of people who will then go out again to hopefully at least buy your liquor and if they are not going to come back you still have the money that they paid for the alcohol and yeah. gambling and whatever that they did while they were on your boat and if you didn't have uh, the startup money in order to get your vehicles your yacht your schooner whatever Canada will fund you. Mm -hmm. Straight up. The Canada exporters, the official exporters, I'm not talking about some backwoods group, they would actually fund you in buying the equipment that you needed in order to either start your offshore casino mm -hmm. or to start your bootlegging business or your rum running business. And there's actually a very interesting history that explains that, and that is Canada had their own prohibition mm -hmm. around the same time that we did. A little bit before ours. Uh, yeah, I mean, roughly around. I mean, not not exactly within our time frame, because the, the temperance movement reached up there quite extensively yeah. as well. The problem is, is that Canada was kind of worse, <laughs> surprisingly, than we were at really enforcing right. it. And so... You know, different provinces were doing all sorts of different things and how they implemented it, because it kind of seems like the government just said, do it and figure it out on your own, where the federal government here was a little bit more organized on cracking down on it. But Canada's didn't last that long because, A, it just wasn't very effective and they couldn't implement it very well. But B, they realized very quickly that there was a lot of money to be made in selling illegal alcohol to the United States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so And they could even charge like have an upcharge oh mm -hmm. you want us to export to you yeah okay that'll be an extra however much and then like you just said the shipbuilders got in on it and the exporters got in on it and so it actually became like a business to illegally sell from like the, the canadian government knew this was happening and mm -hmm. they just let it happen oh they funded it yeah they uh they even would pay your legal fees get you legal counsel if you were caught because they wanted you to get back on the road yeah, as quickly as possible. Although some people did try to avoid that surcharge for mm -hmm. exporting to the United States. They would go and they would start uh, a company in like Cuba. Mm -hmm. And then they would be like, oh, well, I'm not exporting to the United States or, you know, I'm not importing to the United States. I'm just importing to Cuba. <laughs> I uh, yeah, this is my Cuban accent. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, uh, I'm from Cuba. Why do you ask? Yeah, no, it's like, what do you mean? I'm from Cuba. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, it's like, but yeah, so that the whole involvement of like official and unofficial channels, yeah, and the integration of those things is so fascinating to see. Well, even Europe, granted, I don't know how government sanctioned this was, but. At least a lot of the early schooners that rum runners were modifying were being modified with parts coming from uh, particularly like uh, the Norwegian companies or countries, excuse me. Well, countries that house those companies. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, no, like it, everybody was kind of in on it in a, in a very weird way. Where do you think the uh, the 
having multiple cylinders in an engine came from germany mm. yeah they were importing deutschland those yeah they were importing those technologies because they wanted cars that were capable of outrunning the cops yeah prohibition was such an interesting thing and like obviously i think it's clear that both of us disagree pretty strongly with the action of doing it and actually in researching this episode i had no idea how integral the rise of organized crime was to prohibition like if prohibition would have never happened i don't think the mob would have been oh. nearly a problem in following decades as it was and it continues to be to this day actually not nearly as bad as it used to be but it still is active particularly like new york city and whatnot well if they ended drug prohibition then like we wouldn't have the gang violence that we do have exactly so so there's that little bit of information for you yeah um, no, it was completely the government's fault that organized crime was something that was funded yeah but it also gave us all this advancement in technology and ingenuity in particularly like engineering and, and motorization that i'm sure would have maybe happened over time anyway but the acceleration probably put us over a certain <laughs> probably put us over a certain threshold i would imagine in like getting us to where we are now with cars and boats and yeah. all that our own internal conflict is what fueled scientific advancement oh and also you you could maybe point to this being the rise of the military industrial complex because this was the single most expansive up to that point expansion of any branch of the united states army being the coast guard uh that had ever happened up to that point i don't know proportionally how that stacks up oh, now they but they weren't particularly well funded this is actually that and this was also uh when it became official that the government could spy on you mm -hmm. uh legally yeah um so this was there was cats versus united states in 1921 where a bootlegger named samuel Katz, who was being prosecuted for violating the national prohibition he was saying basically hey this wiretapping this evidence that you've gotten through wiretapping is clearly illegal you didn't use a warrant and they went ahead and said yeah it it is illegal actually but we can still use it it's yeah. legal now though it's legal well actually they were doing it beforehand they just didn't want anybody to know about it oh yeah so it was what kind of popularized it but then you also had uh the principle of asset forfeiture allowing uh, law enforcement to seize and confiscate property used in the commission of crimes and it didn't have to be proven you just had to be suspected yeah so a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that came out of prohibition which expanded the ability for the government to enforce certain freedoms against citizens very unfortunately well, yeah. Well, the thing is, is like... It has not had good consequences here in the U.S. So as far as, you know, uh, just your basic monopolies go, it's no shock, it's no controversial statement to say that police had and do have as a mode of their function in society a monopoly on the use of force. Mm -hmm. This just gave them more freedoms against property. Yeah. So they could use force, they could search with less proof, and they could admit more evidence without a warrant than they could before. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have Prohibition to thank for both more crime and more crackdowns on crime that now are still being used 
but might not be as uh, needed. Yep. But technology! Technology! <laughs> we can go fast. <laughs> we can go fast. And, as we discussed, I believe, in our original Prohibition episode, um, refrigeration... Well, refrigeration was before Prohibition. The German immigrants actually invented it for commuting their product, or shipping their product, I should say. But refrigeration technology developed quite a lot as well um, under Prohibition, because you had to keep your product good before it got to your customer and things like that. And ice was getting popular too, so. Yep, especially for your specialties at your speakeasy. Yeah, your your very specialties. This is just tomato juice. Yeah. This is just tomato juice. Just tomato juice. It's an ice cream pot. Actually, I think my favorite one, it was another one from the West Coast. And uh, basically what you did was is you'd go up to a drain pipe you would knock on the drain pipe and then you would just drop money down the drain pipe and a hand <laughs> with a bottle would just come up. <laughs> and that was, that was can the we, spot. Can we reinstitute that? No, honestly, I love this idea. I want to be the guy at the bottom of the of the drain pipe. This sounds amazing. I, I just want to do it. Yeah. It's, it, just... it, it, it's like I, I get to, you know, we all float down here. I, I, I get to interact with Pennywise without the consequences of interacting with Pennywise. I had a dream about Pennywise last night. It was weird. But yeah. Like, <laughs> was he rum running? I, no. <laughs> he was in a photo and I kept on just waiting for him to move and he never did. That's horrifying. Yeah. I was just like, what? do the thing. Do the thing so I can move on. Anywho. Me to the legislators during Prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> no but like i love because it's also like that it, it would it feels like a video game easter egg like oh yeah I you know. go down this one street and knock on this drain pipe and you'll get your little bottle of alcohol and the camera will go all it's shaky just, it's so quaint like yeah. i don't know like i like it's one of the like you had to be in the know you had to know the right person to tell you like I, that's just fascinating to me honestly oh yeah yeah no i absolutely love it so yeah, those were uh, those were our people. Some other notable individuals who you definitely should look up if you do have the chance to. Specifically in relation to James McCoy was someone he lauded as a personal hero of his. That being Gertrude, or Cleo as she was known, Lithgow, the queen of the rum runners. She was very prominent, smuggling alcohol across the U.S.-Canada border during Prohibition, and she operated a fleet of fast boats and led a successful rum running operation that supplied alcohol to various cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. She was incredible. There's also, of course, a queenie, Stephanie St. Clair. Uh, Madam Queen was also a name, uh, and that was a bootlegger in Harlem. And she ran an extensive numbers game that was involved in illegal sale of alcohol during prohibition lots of speakeasies in her purview and actually the only real substantial challenge to the italian mafia at the time something interesting in noting that these were both women is women at the time were kind of ideal bootleggers some of them were rum runners as well but the interesting thing about women at this time and their involvement with the whole thing was a lot of um, sexism at the time was responsible for women kind of not being viewed as viable options for doing crime. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, for a lot of places, it was illegal for a police officer to search a woman. So women could just wear a big coat and wear uh, some kind of harness or something and just put liquor in it and just walk down the street with liquor on them. And they couldn't be searched. 
it was much easier for women at the time. They were very instrumental in a lot of bootlegging and developed a lot of techniques. And like you said, several of them became very prominent. Yeah, they were like leaders. Actually, even in the more violent circles, they were the ones that were handling business acumen. Mm -hmm. They were the ones doing the thinking. Yeah. Although it is kind of funny because at this time, the people who were objecting to the idea of women being capable and, you know, you had judges that were like, well, this little thing, she couldn't possibly. And, you know, it was probably that her husband was forcing her to do it or, you know, stuff like that. They would get away with murder. Quite literally in certain circumstances. Quite literally. Uh, But they were also the ones that were abjectly against the idea of the flapper. The uh, young lady who was going out, not all done out in makeup, who would, you know, cut their hair into a bob cut and just want to be out for the sake of being out and having a good time. Mm -hmm. Which is a a fascinating little timeline. It's like, oh, here are the women in the temperance movement who are actually changing laws, showing a greater level of independence and agency. And then their daughters are showing also more agency by being able to go out and just have a good time by themselves, violating what was established as the man's getaway. Yeah. And then they're the ones that are getting away with it and running those places. Mm -hmm. A lot of amazing things resulting from the, uh, how could we put it? The growing resistance and growth of women's agency in light of a very misogynistic culture. Yes, I think that's fair. Yeah, good stuff. So anything else about Rum Runners, though, that we want to get into? Uh, Well, uh, do we want to talk about how it ended? Yes. Now, unfortunately for all of us, Rum Running did come to an end well fortunately and unfortunately yeah because you know depending on the runners in your area less bloodshed probably a better thing it's not as cool but it no longer was necessary because prohibition ended with the passage of the 21st amendment on december 5th of 1933 yes with that you could not tell anybody what they can and cannot put in their body Mm -hmm. so and there there were holdouts. Some people did try to continue the rum running thing. It's a huge lucrative industry, right? But in combination with the mafia taking over so much of it and the then rising costs of storing it, shipping it, because, you know, profits fell, obviously, and you have all these high-tech boats to maintain and you don't have the income to do so anymore kind of fizzled out but there were some holdouts weren't around for very long though (laughs) although mccoy apparently uh lived a pretty happy life after he uh, moved back down to florida so he's a boat builder yeah he had a skill before he was good with people and he was an honest business person yep so you know there's some things that make you a little timeless exactly the real mccoy some might say (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know Prohibition ended, thankfully, and uh, rum running kind of died out with it. Unfortunately, the mob didn't quite uh, get the death knell. Yeah, they. But... a lot of them were taken down for tax evasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of murder Technically, charges. Technically, that was what Capone got knocked for, right? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was actually the only thing that he got knocked for. Yes. Everything else didn't stick, well, except for syphilis. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> Rightfully so, in his case, I would say. Well, I mean, I-, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but he was a murderer, so... A very prolific and brutal murderer. Yeah, yeah. And eventually he died while engaged in trying to fish in his own chlorinated pool. What a way to go. What a way to go. <laughs> Uh, it's completely clear he could just look at anyway um (laughs) well he also he he had some mental issues by the time he died as well right he wasn't really all there Uh, yeah Yeah. because of the syphilis the syphilis so it's what it does so maybe we can't expect too much of him in that regard yeah at a certain point it's just like i know he killed people but this is sad yeah you know how the mighty have fallen (laughs) seriously uh, but yeah, no, most of them were just taken down for like tax evasion, stuff like that. Some mm-hmm. of them uh, started doing narcotics as a way of trying to get some other illegal money. Yeah. So, but it. That's beyond the scope of our episode, though. Yeah, far beyond it. We might do an episode on the bootleggers and their stuff. We might not. Or the moon. I know we've talked about the moonshiners specifically. Those were, um, those are really cool because a lot of them were just like. It was a thing they did at home. It was like a neighborhood uh-huh. thing. Yeah. So That's where Mountain Dew gets his name also. Fun fact. Yeah. Actually, there's a, a wonderful movie with Shia LaBeouf and Tom Hardy called, I think it's called Lawless. I believe that's the title, yeah. Yeah, and it and it has to do with some moonshiners, and it's it's a fantastic little film. Maybe this will help me reconnect with my ancestry, because fun fact, on my dad's side, some of uh, my grandfather's family came from uh, moonshining. No kidding. Oh, yeah, they were hillbillies. So. Oh, that's great. You see, my, my uh, grandfather on my father's side, he lived in Alexandria, but he had a barge. Oh, that's cool. And he was supporting a, a family of six as a salesman, quote mm-hmm. unquote. This would have been him getting his wealth in the 20s and 30s, and he was a he was an Irishman. Hmm. So... Hmm. I'm I'm suspicious. Yeah. I'm pretty suspicious. Well, maybe these mysteries will be unfurled later on. And he was missing a leg from the knee down on on one side. Yar, har, fiddle dee. <laughs> he he was actually one of the violent <laughs> pirates. Like <laughs> he was no Jack Sparrow. No. He was a Barbosa. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I liked Barbosa. Oh, Barbosa's great. Yeah, Barbosa is But fantastic. he is the villain. Only because we're rooting for Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Although by the fifth movie, I was like, can you please? Yeah. By the fifth movie, I just wanted everyone to die. (laughs) I want these. (laughs) No more tales. And we know what needs to happen. Talk about a rapid decline of a franchise. I mean, I was kind of done by the third one. I'm not going to lie. After the second one, I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like I wasn't looking forward to it anymore after the second one. Yeah. But something you can look forward to. Oh, no, no. no, no, Is what we're about to engage in. No, why is the rum gone? (laughs) I am out of rum, unfortunately. Yeah, no. uh, In our next episode, we are going, well, we were going to do like a mixed drinks Mm -hmm. episode because we wanted to do like a bad alcohol episode. Oh, oh, we're going to do a bad alcohol episode. And we are. But but you'll have to tune in to find out what the bad alcohol was. But yeah, originally we were going to compare like canned cocktails with fresh cocktails and see how they stack up. Which we think we'll do in the future at some point. But it would require a little bit more planning on our end. Yeah. And instead we're doing something that... Something heinous. Heinous. Something that is an abomination. 
something that I thought up, so you know it's going to be real bad. On the way home, I literally told Gabe, I was like, man, I feel like I'm on the edge of where, like, a roller coaster is about (laughs) to go over, like, the curve. Like, Mm -hmm. we're almost at the apex. I am terrified. This is one of those roller coasters that was designed by engineers to euthanize you. (laughs) Jeez. So... (laughs) Well, I know how you played roller coasters. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you have a death. All my roller coasters were definitely completed. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, please do tune in for the next episode. We appreciate you guys so much for joining us. And until then, I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>